Take your Bible, turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to complete our series. Um, we're really not finished with it, but we're going to put the capstone on it today. Our series in Elijah. We've been with Elijah for about 11 weeks now, talking about his story, just getting some faith lessons. Uh, I hope you've gotten a lot out of it. I hope it um, helps you appreciate this man of God, but also some faith lessons that, that we can bring into our life, into our world. I want to talk to you from the subject today, to be continued. And the idea is, is that the mission of God will continue even after a great man like Elijah leaves the scene. So now, just a little bit of intro here before we read our text. King Ahab has died. Now when I say Ahab, what do you think about? We, we've been with him a long time now. What, what do you think about? You think about Jezebel, right? And in fact, the word is that Jezebel keeps stirring him up. And the idea is provoking him to disobey God and dishonor God. All right. So Ahab has died. He died in battle in 1 Kings 22. Elijah's prophecy was fulfilled. And his son, King Ahazah, has, has now taken the throne. He has an accident. He falls out of the, the upper part of his house. He falls through some lattice work and gets a kind of a mortal injury. That's the story we're kind of skipping over. Uh, you can go read that and, and get some of the things you need to get out of that. But in that story, Elijah again calls down fire from heaven on two different occasions. That, that's a pretty powerful man when you can call fire down from heaven, isn't it? He's, he's, done that, he's done that on Carmel. He's done it twice now in this situation with King Ahaziah. And now Jehoram, or Joram, is the king over Israel, who was another one of Ahab's sons. So today we're coming to the end of Elijah's earthly life. And I kind of hate to let him go, to be honest with you. God pays this warrior prophet a huge tribute. God honors this man with this exodus. He leaves the planet in a blaze of glory. Literally, he's going to leave in a blaze of glory. And this man, all of his life, has now honored God. And as he comes to the end, God will now honor him. So let's read. Can we read the text? We're going to read the whole story. I won't be able to talk about all of it today, but I want you to hear it. In, in the sanctuary this morning. Are you ready? Verse number one. We got them right here on the screen. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Keep it to yourself. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? So he answered, yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he, Elisha, said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan, the Jordan River. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Hmm, that sound familiar? 
Is that, do we have any crossing over on dry ground stories in the, in the text already? We've got a couple of them, don't we? The Red Sea. And Joshua did it when they crossed over into the Promised Land. So when you see details like that, they, they, they matter. They relate for a reason. It's keeping the storylines. Verse number 9. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened. As they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind or a storm, literally, into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into, into two pieces. And he also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that. And Elisha crossed over. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We give it first place in our hearts, even now. We ask you to speak, Holy Spirit. There's a lot to be said here about Elijah. There's a lot to be said about this double portion. There's a lot to be said, Lord. Make it bread for us today. Help us to receive what you intended when you had this story captured. Thank you for this man's life. May it inspire us to walk closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's a time in every believer's life here on earth that their last act of kindness will be done, their last song will be sang, their last church service will be attended, last sermon will be preached. There comes a time when we take our last step on this earth and we cross the threshold into eternity. Now see, wise people live with that perspective in mind. Elijah's time has come. And it seems that he and, and all of the people that are around him are fully aware that this is his last day. I just got a little, little, little silly question for you. If you could know when your last day was, would you want to know? Anybody want to know? Would you want to know? How many would want to know? How many don't want to know? How many don't want to go? <laughs> you know, I guess there's pros and cons to all of it. Some say, just surprise me. Let's just let it be done. Not everybody, you know, gets that option. But you've probably had people in your life, I know I have, that, that they kind of have a sense in, uh, uh, that, that the time's approaching, maybe this season of life. And, and maybe you've heard stories about parents who go on trips. And we, I had a family member that did that, went and visited all the children that were scattered all over the country. And then just a week later, and that was the end. It was like it was her farewell tour, really. I mean, she kind of knew that it was her time. Elijah seems to know. But isn't it interesting that even though he knows that his final days are approaching, he's not afraid, he's not depressed, he's not anxious about it, he's not worried about it, because Elijah is a man who lives with a, a, a very different awareness of things than most other people live. He has a very different perspective than the average Joe. 
Elijah lived as if the God of the Bible, the God of all creation, was with him every single day of his life. But ironically, most of the people that Elijah interacts and sees in, in Israel, most of them live as if God were dead or at, at best irrelevant to my personal life. But Elijah lived way different. His time has come. Now notice this. Death did not take him. God came and got him. Did you see that in the story? I mean, it's a pretty wild story, you know. I mean, we read these Bible lessons and we know, and these Bible stories, and we know in church our answer is supposed to be, oh man, that's cool. But you know what? That's pretty freaky, man. I mean, that's wild. Imagine you're walking with your best friend, a chariot of fire comes out of heaven, boom, he takes him out and he steps up, gone, see you. I mean, we don't, we don't think through these things enough because it's, it's like, I mean, you really, your response ought to be, really? <laughs> that ought to be your response, really? Did that really happen? Because it's wild, isn't it? It's wild when you, when you get this glimpse into God's world and God's world somehow overlaps our world and we get a glimpse into it. It's, it it'll blow you away, actually. Death didn't take him. God came and got him. And this is the blessed homecoming reality of all of those who die in Christ. Jesus says some, some really neat things about, uh, about the, the transition, if we can call it that, or the stepping from here to eternity. He says, he says this. John 8, 51 says, most assuredly, Jesus saying this, most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. I'm sure everybody that heard that for the first time was like, well, really? In fact, their response was that that can't be true because Abraham died. But Jesus was really, we're, we're listening on this level. Jesus is talking about something up here. We're listening on a, on a human level, and Jesus is talking about some kind of revelation from God's world. Do, do believers die? Yes, yes. But, but let, me, let me say it like this. Death doesn't take the believer. God comes and gets them. Oh, now their physical body dies. We, we're all acquainted with that. I, I, we've got a story in our heritage, in our family. My great-grandmother. Now, I may have told you this in another teaching from time to time, if, if, if I did, bear with me, but it bears repeating. It's just one of those foundation stories in our, in our family history, in our history of faith. My great-grandmother was inspirational in, in my dad coming to the ministry and the salvation of our family and just the, 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 the kingdom focus of our family. She was very instrumental, bought my daddy his first Bible, carried him to church, all, all kinds of things. It was just a, a great, she's an old Pentecostal lady. Just, she was about this tall. And I was, I was very young when she passed away. I remember being very small and petite and just like white hair and uh, thick accent. She, sometimes she didn't put her teeth in, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but she was the kindest and, and the most caring woman that I ever met. She had gotten cancer and she was in, in the hospital bed withering away. And it was just a matter of time. My dad spent as much time after work with her as he could, and he would go and sit at her bed and read the Bible to her and sing to her and do all kinds of things with her and just spend as much time as he possibly could. Well, she began to approach the end. And she woke up and she saw at the foot of her bed, she saw two figures standing at the foot of her bed. And she says, Jesse, it's my dad. She said, Jesse, do you, do you see him? Do you see him? And he said, no, Mama, what, what is it? She says, there, there are two angels at the foot of my bed. And she said, they, they've come to get me. And Daddy, with big old tears in his eyes, looked over at Memo and said, you just go with them. 
And the very next day, she passed. You know, we say that, they passed. But you know what we mean? They passed in the glory. That's what we mean. She passed in the glory. Now, did death come for her? Well, her physical body died. We, that's a reality. But did death literally take that person who was my great-grandmother? Did death take her? No, God came and got her. <laughs> I believe that's what Jesus is talking about. They will never see death. Somebody that heard him said they'll never taste of death. Then Jesus talking to Martha at the death of Lazarus. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now that's quite a different perspective on life and death and eternity, isn't it? Hmm. Elijah kind of lives with that. So as Elijah takes this final day, he, he goes on this final journey that, that is very telling about this man and, and, and about what he wants to do with this young man he's, he's now acquainted with, he's yoked with, this young man named Elisha. Three of the places where Elijah and Elisha go is Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. Now if you saw that phrase in there when we were reading, it says that, that when they went to these places that there were sons of the prophets. Did you see that in there? There were these sons of the prophets. Now, these were schools, basically. These were training centers that is, is believed. Now, we don't have all kinds of facts on this, but it's believed that Elijah himself started these schools. And these are where some of his disciples who were in training in these particular towns were, were, were at, where they lived, where they trained. So they, these were actually schools of the prophets. Bible schools, if you would. They were studying the scriptures probably, uh, studying the art of, of ministry and how to do that kind of thing. He went to those three places, no doubt, probably to say his last words, maybe give some tips to the administration, tell them goodbye and all that kind of thing. But I guess there's something deeper I want to share with you that I believe he was doing. Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan River are all really important to the history of Israel. It's almost as if on his very last day with his number one disciple, Elijah takes Elisha on this big history lesson through Israel and to talk about Israel's history with God. Now that's, that's, that's neat that he would do that on his final day. He could have just said goodbye, chilled out, said I'm about to cut it, I, I gotta go guys. But instead he takes this young man through this history lesson because I believe he understands something. If you don't know the roots of your history, then it's very possible for a Jezebel to step in and take you in a whole brand new direction. Actually, there's a big battle in our nation today over the history, over who's going to teach the history, how they're going to teach it, the perspectives they're going to use to teach it. And because they are rewriting and revising is what we're calling it, they're, they're revising our history. They're doing it not so that they can change our past, but so that they can change the course of our future. Because history is really important. You understand that? Because that's where you find out who you are, why you are. And there's no doubt in the history of our nation from the onset of when, when the settlers, when the pilgrims, which we're going to celebrate this week, when they came over here and landed at Plymouth Rock, and you read what's called the, this, the very first covenant that our ancestors made on this land, the very first covenant called the Mayflower Compact, it's no doubt that they came here as missionaries to establish America as a Christian nation. There's no doubt about that. 
Now, you very likely will not hear that in, in history classes today. Why? Because the, the things, the, the, the powers that are behind all that want to refocus us on our history so that they can take us in a different direction. So that's what Jezebel does. See what I'm talking about? Everybody good? Whew. All right, I got that out. All right. <laughs> Did you notice that every time that they go to a particular place, Elijah puts Elisha under a test and says, hey, well, why don't you, why don't you just stay here? I, I've got to go uh, over to, to Jericho. Uh, you just stay here in Bethel. I've got to go over here to the Jordan. You just stay over here. Every time, it seems like, he says, stay, I've got to go. And what was Elijah's response? No, 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 no. You're not out of my sight, buddy. I'm not leaving you at all. What's that all about? Well, Elisha has to be tested because all commitments must pass the test. And to Elisha's credit, he passed the test. He passed the test. Now, I'm going to say some things. I'm going to say Elijah and Elisha, and I'm going to try to get them straight. But how many besides me sometimes get them mixed up and call Elijah, Elisha, and Elisha, Elisha? Anybody do that? Let me tell you how I try to keep them in my mind. J before S. Elijah comes before Elisha. That's just kind of a little help right there. But forgive me if I, if I mess up and call somebody something else. All right. So they started this journey, this, this historical faith journey tour, goodbye tour basically, farewell tour, in Gilgal. Gilgal was very close to the place where Abraham first came to the land by the word of the Lord. In fact, that, the promise that God made Abraham, that's why it's called the promised land. You've heard it called that before? The, the holy land or Israel is called the promised land. It's because it's the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants who would come after him. It was very close to that place where God made this promise and told him to go there. And I hear him saying, Elisha, remember, remember, we're at Gilgal. God made a covenant right here with our father Abraham. This land and these people belong to God. Remember that, Elisha, because you're living in a nation of people who have forgotten. And you have to be the conscience of the nation and help them remember. Remember. It's a real important word in the Bible. Jesus uses it in some of his final words at the Last Supper. He says, remember, because we are people with the propensity to forget. Then he goes from Gilgal to Bethel. Bethel or Bethel. Bethel simply means the house. Beth is house. El is God. The house of God. Now remember what happened in Bethel. Actually, it was called Luz before. L-U-Z. And then Jacob has this experience in Genesis 22. Remember where he makes a stone his pillow and there he has that vision. Remember that, that dream he has of this ladder that connects heaven and earth. And he sees the angels ascending and descending. And he says, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven where I'm at. And there God makes a covenant promise to Jacob. See, these places are not by chance now. He makes a, a covenant promise to Jacob that I will give this land to your people and your descendants, and I will be your God. And not only did God make a promise to Jacob there at Bethel, but Jacob makes a vow and a promise, a covenant, as it were, to God right there. And he sets up this standing stone and pours oil upon it and makes it a, a place of memory, a memorial 
for the people to remember that God is with us. Bethel. And then later, Jacob's name would be changed. We see that in Genesis 32. Jacob's name would be changed from Jacob to Israel, from the conniver to the one who has found favor with God, Israel. And I hear Elijah reminding Elisha, saying, these people have been named by God. These people have been marked by God. This land is God's land. These are God's people. The enemy can't have this. Because we know something about Bethel and we know something about Gilgal that right there were places where Ahab and Jezebel had set up for the worship of Baal. So the enemy was coming in, trying to take over the ground, trying to take over the land, taking over the minds of the people. And Elijah takes him to Bethel and says, Remember, this belongs to God. These people belong to God. The enemy cannot have this. Then they go from there to Jericho. Remember Jericho? Remember all those Sunday school lessons about Jericho? And the walls came tumbling down, 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 down. Remember that? (laughs) This was the first city that Joshua and Israel conquered after the death of Moses as they crossed over the Jordan and went into Jericho. Right? It's where they drove the pagans out and they began to establish this as their territory. God supernaturally gave them the victory there at Jericho. Again, Elijah is reminding Elisha, remember this, Elisha, remember. Believe God to do it again. Pagans have filled our lands. They've taken over the minds of our children and and it's coming in. But you remember that God once gave us this land supernaturally. You believe him, Elisha, to do it again. There's a lesson here. Then they go from Jericho, then they go to the Jordan River. And it seems kind of kind of wild. <laughs> they get to the Jordan River. What's the Jordan River? Is that, that river that, that that bisects the nation north and south? It starts at basically in the, the, the Mount Hermon, it kind of trickles down. It creates what's called the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Gennesaret, the Galilee. It, it's just really basically a wide spot in the Jordan River, and the Jordan River comes out of the Sea of Galilee and empties into the Dead Sea. The Jordan River is a really important river in the story. In fact, the Jordan River is in the Jesus story, right? What, what, what happens at the Jordan River with Jesus? That, that's where Jesus is baptized, in the Jordan River. Now, that's not a mistake. That's not just, oh, well, here's some water. Here, can we do it? Here. No, no. John the Baptist is preaching at the Jordan because the Jordan marks the boundary line where everything changed for the nation. And spiritually, Jesus is doing that at the Jordan River because now everything's about to change again. Through Jesus. But that's, that's after the Elijah story. So now, now what, what does this mean for Elijah and Elisha? Well, well, first of all, he takes off that mantle that he's got. And that mantle was probably his, like his outer garment. Maybe it was something that was draped over him. An outer garment. He takes that thing, wraps it up on his arm. And he takes it and he just, strikes the waters of that river. And that river just rolls back. Come on. Let's go. Now ain't that just cool? I don't think if you couldn't do that, you wouldn't do that now. We'll go over to the creek. Let's go over there right now. <laughs> what, what did he do that for? Was he just showing off? It's possible, but I, I doubt it. 
He, he was teaching him about th this idea of transition, this idea of going from one side to the other. In fact, we've got tons of spirituals and songs written about crossing over Jordan, you know, that kind of thing. Because it's symbolic in mind that if you cross over Jordan, you cross over from one thing going into God's thing. That's the idea. The Jordan was where Israel crossed over to go into the promised land, God's land. Remember, they follow the priest and the ark, step in the waters. And as the priest step into the waters, they roll back. Everybody crosses on dry ground. I hear Elijah saying to Elisha as they cross over the Jordan, Elisha, take them in. Lead them back to God. Be like Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Take them into the land. Take them back to God. These people, this land belong to God. Remember, remember Elisha. Because if we don't remember God's promises, we fall for the enemy's lies. It's true. As they cross the Jordan, <laughs> now, you're Elisha. You, you've been with this man for a little while. We're not sure how long. He's been with him for a little while. He's a pretty impressive man, you know. Elijah's pretty rugged, seems. He, he, he's hairy. I kind of reminds you of an outdoorsman is what, what you get in mind. He's probably not the most congenial, nicest guy the, on the planet. Prophets are just usually not built that way. I'm not saying he wasn't compassionate. He obviously was with the widow and all that kind of thing. But he had that kind of rugged personality where, you know, black was black and white was white. You know what I'm talking about? That kind of thing. C can you imagine Elisha walking with him and as he does that and strikes the river and Elisha just, what, what would you think Elisha would do? How do you think he'd feel? How would you feel? Pastor invites you over for dinner and y'all go on a walk and you go out to the creek right here and he splits the water and y'all go to the other side. I didn't want to walk around, you know. <laughs> How would you feel about that? And you, we read these stories, but, but look, I mean, th these are real people dealing with these real things. And I, I'm sure Elisha is impressed, to say the least. But as they cross the Jordan, Elijah asked him a question. He says, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? That's kind of a loaded question. That's kind of a blank check. What, what do you want me to do for you? Seems like without hesitation, Elisha responds and says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Whew. Really? Now, Elisha didn't ask for any worldly goods or any fame or fortune or anything that Elijah may or may not have. He didn't ask for anything material, but he asked for something spiritual. He asked for a double portion of this man's spirit to be upon him. Now, here's, here's, here's a strange thing in the Bible that it teaches us from time to time. That men, Moses does it with Joshua. He lays hands on Joshua and he literally imparts his spirit to Joshua. That happened. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't, that's, that's real mystical and it has a lot of mystery in it. I don't understand all of that kind of thing. So I don't, I can't feel a whole lot of questions on it. I just know it happens from time to time. 
Have you ever met somebody who hangs out with somebody and then they start talking like somebody, they start acting like somebody, they start dressing like somebody? Well, that's kind of that impartation thing's happening maybe on a gradual basis. This happens with Moses and Joshua, and Elijah says, I want it to happen between us. Now, this double portion thing, there's been a lot of people do conferences on it, write books on how to get the double portion and all that kind of thing. Most of it's just uh, shenanigans, to be honest with you. Because how do you get a double portion of somebody's spirit? You, you've got to walk with them. You've got to be with them. It takes a lot of commitment. It's not about coming to an altar and everybody come down and let's pray on you to get a double portion. That, that is not how it works. And whenever somebody starts preaching like that, hang on to your wallet and walk out the door. Because that's where it's going. I can just promise you. You hear me? Because this is, this is a hard thing to ask and it's a hard thing to impart. A lot of things have to happen. Now, when, when he's asking for this double portion, what he basically is asking, remember how they would split up the, the inheritance between the kids, uh, between the sons? If they had two sons, the older son got what? He got an extra portion, basically. He got twice as much as the younger son. We see that in the prodigal story, right? That's basically what he's asking. He's not just asking for a double portion. He is saying, you have started something. You've started this ministry, Elijah. I want to be your successor, and I want God to help me to take this thing to a whole new level. I can see his request kind of making Elijah step back a second. He said, you know what? You have asked a hard thing. Because you know what? With the double portion anointing that Elijah had, is going to come a double portion persecution that he had as well. See, that's the part they don't tell you about in the book, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you, you may get double good, but you also sometimes get double trouble. You, you know that anybody that's come into any kind of wealth, you know that there's a great blessing that comes with it, but there's also a huge responsibility and oftentimes a burden that comes with it as well. You have asked a hard thing, because Elijah has lived a good life, but make no mistake about it, it hadn't been an easy life. You're asking a hard thing. He said, nevertheless, here, here we get to the crux of our ideas this morning. If you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. So what, whatever is about to happen, Elijah kind of knows. Elisha doesn't. But whatever is about to happen is of utmost importance that Elisha sees it. Because Elijah knows that a reality is about to break into their reality and show them something that is going to equip Elisha to do what he's supposed to do. Now think about that now. Whatever is going to happen, he says, it's of utmost importance for you to see this, Elisha. If you see it, you can go forward in it. You'll be blessed with this anointing. Double portion. If you don't see it, there's no way it can happen. So what's about to happen is the secret of Elijah's power is going to be revealed in a vivid fashion. You know, we've walked a little bit with him now. He's, he's taught us a lot about faith. The word of the Lord came to Elijah is a phrase that just keeps showing up in the story. The, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And every time the word of the Lord came to Elijah, what did Elijah do? He did whatever he said, right? Whatever the Lord said, whatever the word was, he followed it out. That's faith. 
to hear God and do what He says. That's faith. Elijah taught us a lot about courage. A man comes out of nowhere from the hills of Gilead, steps into the king's palace. This arrogant, audacious king who is taking the nation in a new direction and he says, hey buddy, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. When that's, when's that going to be? I'll get back with you. He walks out. And he stands up against the forces of Ahab and Jezebel and all the forces of wickedness. That's going. He, he, his whole life is lived in this state of courage. Every single day he is a wanted man. He shows us what it's like to live for God in the state of courage. And boy, do we need that. It's one of the reasons I jumped into this series during this time. Elijah's taught us about patience. Three years, no rain, no dew. That's a long time. He goes to the brook for however long. He sits in solitude to wait upon the Lord for his next assignment. He teaches us about patience. He teaches us about compassion as he cares for the widow's son and, and the widow and her son and even raises the son from the dead. He teaches us a lot. And of course, he teaches us about power. We see all kinds of things happening from this boy being raised up from the dead to the heavens shutting up, no rain, all at his command. Authority granted by the Lord, but it was granted to Elijah. I don't care how you slice it. You can say God did it, yes, but he did it through Elijah. It's impressive. Then calling the fire down from heaven and then praying the rain, the, the heavens open up at his prayers. Now God could have just opened them up. God could have just sent the fire. God could have just done it, but he didn't do it outside of Elijah. He did it with Elijah as his partner on the earth. Elijah shows us what it is to walk in power. He also teaches us about God's restoring grace. That God's still with you even after you quit. <laughs> and even though you quit on God, He doesn't always quit on you. He taught us about that restoring grace and, and Elijah gets that at the cave and God refires him back. He was trying to retire and God said, let's refire, let's do it different. Let's go back to business here. All those things, all those things, faith, courage, patience, compassion, power, all those things. What was the secret to all of that? There was one secret to all of that. Elijah lived fully aware of the heavenly dimension. He was fully aware of God. He was fully aware of the angelic hosts that were with him at all times. He was fully aware of the protection of God that was with him all times. He was fully aware of the heavenly dimension in his life. And how could he not be afraid of a man that could take his life is because he feared the God who held his life. He was fully aware of the heavenly dimension. And God was about to do something in these moments where that veil was torn back and that heavenly dimension would be revealed again. See, Elijah knew this all the time. He knew this the whole time. Elisha was going to have to be the one to see it now. And for Elijah, God was more real to him than the people he saw walking down the street every day. You hear me? So then it happens. This veil's going to be torn. And a, and a, and a piece of heaven is going to be seen on earth. 
It happened as they continued on and talked and, and it's as if they were in conversation and the conversation gets interrupted by this chariot of fire that appears before them. And these horses on fire. Man. What do you picture in your mind? I mean, what, how in the world do you formulate this? I mean, what, what are we seeing? What are you seeing? This, and literally it says this. It says that he was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. That word whirlwind, it's like a tornado. The idea is like a hurricane or a storm. It's like this storm of God's presence. An interesting idea about that word that's translated whirlwind, that word could go for the negative, like judgment, or it can go for the positive, like a blessing of the presence of God. So like Israel is getting a whirlwind that's happening to them over Ahab and Jezebel. There's a whole storm going on over them, a storm of judgment. Elijah is going to have a storm of God's presence. It's coming. It's here. And this chariot of fire, oh my goodness, I mean it's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. This chariot of fire descends from heaven. I mean it's, just, it's a chariot. That obviously you can see it. And it's flaming as a symbol of the presence of God. Because evidently everything that God touches catches fire, you know what I'm saying? Especially with Elijah. <laughs> and these horses, I mean, what do these horses look like? I mean, I see them as these big muscular stallions coming down out of heaven. And these, these, it's like this fire that's around them. I don't, I don't know how you picture it. Go Google some Elijah paintings. That's what I did yesterday. I was going to show you a bunch of them, but I just don't have time. Elijah paintings. Go, go look at some of this. See some of the artist's interpretation of some of this kind of stuff. It's pretty fascinating. That's, that's a pretty impressive moment, wouldn't you think? I mean, that'll get your attention. I mean, you, you won't be the same when you go to Sunday school next week, will you? I mean, you will not be the same dude. And that's exactly what Elijah knew Elisha needed to see. He needed to see the secret of how involved heaven can be with earth. He needed to see this secret revealed. It was imperative that Elisha become more aware of God and His kingdom in the days ahead. And in these moments, Elisha's eyes were opened to a whole new reality. Now, he had been living in Elisha's, Elijah's presence for a long time. But now he knew he was living in God's presence. There's a big difference. See, there's a big difference in knowing God and hanging out with people that know God. Now, hang out with people that know God until you know God. But there's a big difference, you know what I'm saying? In hanging out with people that know God and really knowing God. And in these moments, Elisha was opened up to a whole new... His eyes were opened. He was forever changed. And listen to me, in order for us to stand strong in these days, these last days, we must see the kingdom like never before. We must experience the reality of the living God like never before. I'm not talking about just church services. I'm not talking about just Bible devotions and things like that. All those things are wonderful and they're part of the building blocks of life in God's kingdom. But I'm talking about a people who know their God and are strong and do great exploits in the face of all the adversity and all the backlash and all the persecution. There better arise a people who know their God. There better arise a people who can say before an Ahab like Elijah did, hey, I'm standing before you because the Lord God before whom I stand has told me to do this. 
Now, if we fast forward just a little bit to wrap all this together, did Elisha live in this reality of this unseen world being real to him? Did he live in this reality? There's a story in 2 Kings 6, 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17. I got it right here. The armies had come to take Elisha, much like they did one time to take Elijah. They come and they surround the house and they're threatening Elisha to, to take him and, and judge him and probably kill him. It's, it's as if Elisha's servant that's very with him is in a tizzy. He's, he's just taken by this. He's in an, an anxiety fit, probably like most of us would be if, if that kind of situation was presenting itself. Elisha's cool as a cucumber. He's fine. He's okay. And look at the reality, because Elisha does take this ministry of Elijah to a whole new level. He does. A double portion does happen to him. Twice as many miracles seem like, I mean, a real powerful life in the earth with this man. So he answered to this to a servant, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, what did he see? And behold, the mountain was full of horses, and there they are again. They were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. <laughs> you know why he wasn't freaking out when everybody else was freaking out? He literally lived underneath another reality. The reality of God and His presence and His angelic host. God is with me. And if God be for me, who can be against me? Or, or let me say it like this. If God be for me, then what does it matter who's against me? And then John would say it like this. Greater is He who is in me than he who is in the world. So maybe it would be real appropriate for us to pray like Elisha prayed, open our eyes that we may see. So that God's world is not just the world that I'm going to. It's a world that's with me now. And see what Jesus did for us. Jesus said this. He said, because of what I'm doing on the earth, he said, I want you to repent, change the way you think about everything. I want you to repent because the kingdom of heaven has come close to you. It's right at hand. It's come close to you. So Jesus taught us about this reality. And he lived in that reality. It says that Jesus didn't do anything except what he saw the Father do. Now what in the world? He, he, he would see a man that was in church that needed healing. And, and Jesus would see God somehow on this man and he would be moving. And, and Jesus would respond to what he saw. But guess who else saw it in the room? Nobody. He, Jesus lived in this reality of all these things God was doing nobody ever saw. But He did. And He responded differently, didn't He? Jesus said, I want you, us, His believers, His followers, to live like that. In one of the greatest conversations that's ever been recorded in the Gospels, Jesus sits down with a man named Nicodemus. That's where we get the idea of being born again from that conversation. One thing that we skip over is in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, let, let me put that in, in its positive. Flip it without doing any damage to it. Just let me flip it to its positive. If one is born again and steps into this kingdom, then they begin to see the kingdom. What's the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is the rule of God that's going on, the work of God that's going on all over the place. And that if you're born again, you get a whole new pair of eyes. <laughs> you get a whole new, new way to see life, to see living, to see people, to see your resources, to see what you can do, to see what God wants you to do, to see how you can partner with Him. We don't, we don't talk about that much. We, 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 we hang our hat on the idea that being born again is having your sins forgiven. And that is a huge part of it. But that's only the beginning. God wants you to see some things that he's doing. Not so we can be spectators to a grand spectacle that's happening, but so that we can be participators and partners with the God who says, I want you to be like Elijah and Elisha. Now, we may not be the prophets. We may not confront the pagan nations on, the Mount, on Mount Carmel. We may not do that kind of thing, but God has a work that he wants each one of us to do. And see, this whole story now, this whole story of Elijah and Elisha here at the end is about the work of God that is to be continued. We draw strength from Elijah. We draw faith from him. We, we look and see and we're inspired. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. We learn. But what Elijah wants us to do is to continue in what he started. I could promise you if our dear brother could come here today and preach a sermon, he would say, many thousands of years ago, I started something. I helped be a part of something. I need you to take the baton and continue what needs to happen in your generation. Do you hear what I'm saying? But beloved, listen to me. The church will only be an organization unless it comes into contact with the reality of the heavenly realm. And when it comes in contact with the reality of the heavenly realm, everything changes. Power comes, life comes where deadness was. You hear me? I've got some other notes, but let's just close it right there. Where, where I want to take you, you two in our prayer time is open our eyes, Lord. I don't know what that's going to be for you. It, it might be something different for you and something different for me. I don't know. Paul teaches us a prayer. Actually, he prays a prayer, but it's also a teaching lesson about what to pray for for other believers. In Ephesians 1, 16, 17, and 18, he says something like this. He says that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God would be on you. See, that's the revelation. That's what that was. It was a revealing. It's a revelation. And this is, he continued. He says, and that the eyes of your understanding, you, you know how he finished it? What's that? Would be enlightened. 
See, we, we just read over that kind of stuff. But that is to be reality for us as believers. Now, I know we risk everybody turning weird. But that's a risk we've got to take. We'll try to help weird or show it out. But how weird was Jesus? In order for us to continue, we've got to have our eyes open. Let's ask God to help us. Help us, Lord. Hmm. Thank you for our study with Elijah. Thank you for capturing these stories. Framing it up so we could put some handles on it and try to understand some of it. We thank you for that. But Lord, you, you put this man's life in the written pages of your word so that we could somehow be equipped in a different way than if we didn't know this story. So give us what we need. Give us what we need, Lord. We got a lot of opposition coming down the pipe on a national level, but Lord, most of us not not going to be able to deal with that. We got all kinds of stuff on our own plate. We need your help with. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. We're hungry. We're thirsty to see you, to know you in a, in a deeper way. To see your kingdom come. And Lord, what, whatever that means. And so often we're hungry for stuff we don't, we're not even sure what, what we're hungry for, but we're, we're just hungry for you to pour out your blessing, to pour out your spirit, to, to help us, to make us into the people you created us to be. Lord, you've got great plans for the folks that are within the sound of my voice. You've got great plans for each one. Open our eyes. Not so we can see the plans, but so we can see you.